Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I have a confession to make, which is that I'm having some quarantine envy of other members of the podcast. And on Instagram, Shane Harris keeps posting these beautiful pictures of his lovely home and lovely husband with these like very like beautiful dinners that they're eating. Meanwhile, my quarantine experience is like chicken nuggets and finger paint. And I just scroll through with so much envy. Damn it, Shane. In my defense, Susan, Joe has not actually appeared in one of the photos. You know, somebody tweeted the other day, which I thought was very wise, that if there is a baby boom following this coronavirus quarantine, it will entirely be composed of firstborn children. <laughs> True <laughs> words were never spoken. <sighs> there going to be no baby boom in this house. I'm getting dinner from Kinship Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Flatten the Curve edition. I'm Shane Harris. How's everyone's curve feeling? Flat? Rounded? Spiking? Definitely not flat enough. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to judge my if curve right now. If you leave the L out of flatten the curve, you get fatten the curve. It's only one letter difference, but it's really <laughs> different in impact. I, I can tell you my curves are fattening this week. <laughs> I'm actually exercising more and eating less, but that's probably because of anxiety and work. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't your life amazing, Shane? <laughs> it's just all these fabulous dinners that I'm eating are so healthy and low calorie. <laughs> Shane's like, I think I'm getting more handsome. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my goodness. Quarantine wow. stressing yeah, well, we'll our see. camaraderie. Maybe like, you know, by Easter, you guys, we can see each other in person. It'll be just fine. I'll be ready to wear my Easter hat. <laughs> we'll be out there raring to go, barely I'm fitting into go. our Let's clothes. <laughs> raring, the raring edition. Oh, my goodness. I am here in the Bloomingdale studio, and we are joined all together remotely with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Shane. Hi, Hi, Shane. We're joining you from the bed studio. <laughs> the bed studio. We're doing the John and Yoko thing again? Yes. John and Yoko here. Excellent. We actually have, we've been in bed uh, the entire week. <laughs> no. <laughs> TMI, wow. Ben. <laughs> Yeah, this is like a war protest. Too much false information. <laughs> Protesting the coronavirus. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, on the podcast this week, it took weeks for administration officials to persuade Donald Trump that the coronavirus posed a significant threat to the United States. Did those delays hinder the fight against the virus? The coronavirus may also pose a threat to democratic values as governments deploy aggressive surveillance to combat the pandemic. And there are shakeups in the senior ranks of U.S. counterterrorism. Um, so let's start with what we're learning uh, in the past week or so about the administration's response, or perhaps we should say lack of response or disconnected response uh, to the coronavirus. We learned in the past week that the first alert, I guess you could say, that the administration probably had was when the director of the CDC on January 3rd had a conversation with counterparts in China and realized that they were dealing with a new virus. Uh, and then we understand from some of the reporting we've actually done at the Post that uh, not long after that, the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, tried to get the president to talk about this and could not get him on the phone for another 15 days on January 18th. And when he did, the president didn't want to talk about coronavirus. He wanted to talk about vaping and when flavored vaping products would be back on the market. So, Susan, let's kind of put a paint a picture here, if we will, let's start with you. 
Wait, I don't want to talk about this, Shane. I want to talk about vaping and when flavored vaping products are going to be back on this show. Uh, well, I don't know that they were ever on the show, but perhaps if Jewel wants to sponsor us, we can talk about something. Uh, Susan, let's start with you. What, based on what we're seeing so far, what is the picture to you that is emerging of how the president and the administration were responding or not responding to this really beginning in early January when at least some of the red flares start to go up? Yeah, so Shane, I thought this was really damning reporting um, from you and your colleagues at the Post. Um, and and a, an element about sort of pandemic response that a lot of people might not appreciate, which is that intelligence collection and the intelligence community is a really important part of how countries respond to pandemics, in part because it's the way we understand what's actually happening on the ground. So we see right now why various countries, particularly authoritarian countries like China, Iran, Russia, uh, have real incentives to downplay what's happening whenever pandemics are emerging within their populations. And so part of what the intelligence community is doing is collecting information, both signals intelligence, right? What are the leaders of these countries actually saying? What are their medical communities actually saying? And also, what are sort of the hints we can gather about the disconnect between what they're telling the rest of the world and what's happening on the ground? So your story includes this detail that U.S. intelligence noted that that officials from Wuhan were suddenly being transported using chartered planes, right? That's an indication of, hey, the government's actually really concerned about this. Uh, you know, we shouldn't take their word for it. Now, Donald Trump and sort of the Trump administration and the Fox News ecosystem have really leaned into wanting to blame the Chinese for lying, for hiding the outbreak, for, for contributing to its spread. That's all true. China did lie. They did attempt to hide the outbreak. They did behave irresponsibly in ways that uh, that sort of contributed to the spread. That said, if Donald Trump was given that information in early January and February and decided to ignore it and actually came out in public and said he believed Xi Jinping essentially over the intelligence reports that he was receiving, saying, you know, I think Xi Jinping is doing this great job. I, you know, I, I appreciate and applaud President Xi's response here, um, you know, and essentially ignoring the information that was happening on the ground, you know, the, the failed response and the lack of attempts to capitalize on the lead time that lies with Trump. And, and let's be really, really clear. The failure to act earlier has cost people's lives. There's just no question about that. And it will continue to cost people's lives and has contributed to sort of the crisis situation, you know, that we're in right now. Now, we did see a little bit of sort of talking points in January and February emerge on Fox News and from the White House saying, hey, the coronavirus is this big deal. Why aren't people taking it seriously? But they were only using it as sort of a rejoinder during the impeachment, saying, hey, you know, we should be focusing on this other story. Forget about impeachment. Look how irresponsible the Democrats are. Now, they might actually have a, a pretty powerful talking point right now, except for the fact that actually the White House was taking no steps behind the scene, was doing absolutely nothing to prepare for a pandemic that that they were informed was coming. And so, you know, this is um, in some ways a continuation of the themes we've seen throughout Trump's presidency, including his instincts of believing authoritarian leaders over his own intelligence community, ignoring expertise, ignoring intel reporting. And now we're seeing how the consequences of that play out in the context of, an, of a pandemic and where, where millions and millions of people's lives are on the line. Ben, one of the things that I found so striking in doing this reporting is, you know, you had obviously, you know, the intelligence community, um, you know, playing its important function exactly as Susan describes it, particularly trying to divine the, the intentions or the deceptions of a foreign government, in this case, you know, China. And we now know that they were the world, I think, has seen that they were not being honest. But what's also so striking about this to me is that you almost you didn't need a confidential a classified report to tell you that all of these vectors were kind of pointing in one direction. Uh, and it seems that at least among the people who some of them who who 
did need to be paying attention to this, like Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, they were taking it seriously. And this inability to get through to Trump, it just seems like a repetition of a theme of if it's not something that he wants to hear, he's just genuinely not going to engage on it. Um, and at some point, I guess I found myself thinking, wow, if a president is simply not going to listen, you know, what are the other levers that are available to people in the government? You know, what what else could they have done? I'm not sure they could have done very much, to be honest. Uh, obviously, the CDC could have not screwed up the test. Uh, that would have been a big deal. The FDA seems like it probably had some uh, regulatory uh, roadblocks that were unproductive. But these are the kind of things that are dealable with with presidential leadership and much harder to deal with without it. With no disrespect to uh, your excellent reporting, I do want to say that actually the president didn't need the intelligence community to know this was a big deal. The news reports from China, as well as the apparently rapid spread of the virus around China and around Asia were all you needed to know that A, this was coming here, and B, we were unprepared for it when it did. And so the president, yes, had access to a lot of classified information that was confirmatory of the scary, obvious fact. But the scary, obvious fact was obvious. And, you know, the fact, and I think that makes your point even more acute that you know, he just doesn't want to deal with realities that are not confirmatory of his worldview and biases and and also that don't praise him. And the idea that you were going to have a virus that was going to come here that was going to do significant economic damage and was going to require a major public health and logistical management effort to get under control was just not something he wanted to hear. I, you know... I don't disagree with any of that. And it's quite clear that the president's capacity for denial, even in the face of clear contrary facts, is powerful. But I'm not quite ready to let the rest of the government off the hook here. You know, I think the post reporting makes clear that there were people inside the executive branch who were trying to flag this issue, trying to get the president's attention. But Part of what's happened is the willingness of senior officials, especially the layer just below the president, to be supine in the face of his preferences. And when you're talking about something like this, what's the intelligence community's role here? The intelligence community's role is to provide strategic warning. That's it. What to do with that strategic warning is you know, for cabinet level officials and for the national security advisor, first among all of them, to get in the president's face with the help of the chief of staff and say, Mr. President, this is something we need to act on now. These are the steps I propose. Make a decision, yes or no. And we have a supine national security advisor. That's been clear for a long time. We have a supine secretary of state, a supine secretary of defense. Why do we expect Azar to be any different from the guys who have been dealing with life and death issues for months and years and uh, deferring to what the president is and isn't willing to talk about? So I think, you know, these guys, this was yet another moment, but one with tremendous consequences where these guys clearly had a duty. Their duty was to get in the president's face and be willing to risk pissing him off in order to tell him what he didn't want to hear. And none of them, it appears, were willing to do that. That's number one. Number two, just very quickly, if we had had, we talked about last week, the dismantling of the directorate in the national security staff that would have dealt with this issue. If we had a functioning interagency process, then it's quite possible that starting back in January, when those intel warnings were coming in, they could have stood up a task force then at a lower level that would have done the information assessment across the government about what what we have, how prepared are we, what's missing, what might we want to do, and filter that up to the president instead of not doing that work. And then all of a sudden, it's at the presidential level, and they have to figure out how to do it on the fly. 
So I agree with everything Tammy just said about how important it is to focus on all the things that the administration didn't do and individuals surrounding and supporting the president and in Congress were not doing. But I, I don't think we should move on to the next topic without at least noting for a minute one thing that at least some members of Congress did do in response to these pandemic briefings, including Senator Richard Burr, including Kelly Loeffer, which is that they took these briefings and then they stole their stocks. Um, Richard Burr reportedly sold $1.6 million in stock in a period of time in which he was aware that the warnings about this pandemic were worse than what was being told to the American public, uh, that, that the president was downplaying the risk to the American public. And instead of going out and saying, hey, I have reason to believe the president is not taking this seriously. He then used that sort of inside information to make money off of it and to protect himself from 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 sort of catastrophic financial loss and actually went out and said and suggested that the administration had their response under control. And, you know, as somebody who's um, who's spoken with, uh, I think, a, a tempered but reasonable degree of admiration for Richard Burr in the past, you know, I, I think we need to understand that this behavior by the chair of the Intelligence Committee is so fundamentally unacceptable that when the sort of the immediate crisis has passed, we're going to need to get back to discussing the implications for what it means for a member to have used sensitive information, classified information in that manner. And I also think we do have to sort of wonder if that's what Senator Burr was doing, if that's what Senator Loeffler was doing, then then what was Donald Trump doing? What was associates close to the Trump family doing in terms of sort of stocks and financial information? Because that is a simmering scandal and, and I think really, really egregious abuse that we shouldn't just move move on from when this is all done. And just one final thought on this for me too, that it's kind of struck me in a lot of the reporting is we to even like take it off of the president for just a second and look at the CDC's role in this. And the CDC seems to have been the first ones to kind of clue into this. I think as we go back and we do sort of the retrospective, and maybe there will be something like a coronavirus commission like there was after the 9-11 attacks. A lot of people, have, have, I think, are, are sympathetic to doing that. The, the, strict, the restrictions that were placed on state and local governments uh, for the criteria for doing testing being very strict and very rigorous which ultimately resulted in not that many people getting tested. I think that's also going to be a really powerful question to ask as to what degree it's sort of not just government dysfunction at the federal level, but maybe a little bit of federal bigfooting prevent state and local officials from doing the kind of surveillance in their communities. And I'm particularly thinking in Seattle, where uh, a, a public health official there kind of went on her own and said, you know, forget this, I'm going to go ahead and start doing testings based on flu samples I've collected, even though the CDC has told me not to. I, I think it'll be an important question to ask whether or not the federal government to some degree just got in the way of the people who are now in the communities who are going to uh, bear, it seems like, the brunt of this and the worst cases. Um, but that will be a discussion for another day. Let's let's kind of pivot on this now and another theme on the pandemic that is fascinating and not getting a ton of attention, uh, but it's kind of core to what we talk about on the podcast. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, Tammy, recently authorized the Israeli security agency to deploy surveillance technology that's normally reserved for battling terrorists, this time to track coronavirus patients. Uh, and this move came after a struggle over parliamentary authority between Netanyahu, who is heading an interim, interim government, and the opposition leader that's trying to replace him. So this seems like a really interesting example of how the coronavirus is testing democracy and democratic norms in Israel and around the world. What, what do you think about that? So just to kind of recap where Israel finds itself at this moment, they had uh, parliamentary elections on March 2nd, their third attempt at parliamentary elections to form a new government in the past 12 months. And those elections on March 2nd were, again, inconclusive. But one outcome is that Blue and White, the major opposition party, had a majority of members of Knesset in the newly elected Knesset that were willing to recommend the opposition leader, Benny Gantz, for prime minister. And that meant that there was not a majority to keep Netanyahu as prime minister. 
even with that outcome, uh, Gantz has not been able to assemble enough votes, 61 votes, to get a government coalition together. And so the two parties, Likud, Netanyahu's party, and Blue and White, have been jockeying for position. And in the midst of all that, of course, there is this coronavirus crisis. The interim prime minister, Netanyahu, is um, acting on an emergency basis without a functioning parliament to oversee the decisions that he's making. And it's in that context that they decided to use a tool. The Israeli security agency, the Shin Bet, is Israel's agency that is primarily focused on preventing Palestinian terrorism or preventing domestic terrorism. It sometimes includes right-wing Israeli terrorism as well. And they have this platform that they use to track terrorists. And they said, hey, we can use this to track people that we know have tested positive or live in a household with someone who's tested positive and make sure that these people aren't violating the quarantine. And so Netanyahu approved this on an emergency basis and then kind of all hell broke loose. <laughs> it, it violated a norm to have this Shin Bet operate domestically on citizens of Israel or at least Jewish citizens of Israel. And it also really brought to light the extent to which the government has the capacity in the midst of an urgent crisis to override privacy and liberty concerns that would otherwise be, you know, there'd be a very, very high bar to violate them. And normally, too, you would have a parliamentary committee that could approve this decision, that could oversee the policy you know, in the way that we have debates about congressional oversight on FISA, for example. But right after an election, the new parliament hasn't been convened. It doesn't have the right committees in place. And so no one can oversee. Now, I will say that the Israeli government ultimately bent over backward to create provisions that are protective of people's privacy, that the data would go directly from the Shin Bet to the health ministry. It wouldn't go anywhere else in the government. The data would be destroyed within, I think, two months, um, and it would only be used for this purpose. Ultimately, the high court got a chance to rule on the legality of the decree, and they approved it today. So, you know, in that sense, you can say that democratic norms and institutions weren't completely overridden. But it's an interesting indicator of the challenges that a lot of democratic governments are facing. In Hungary, you know, Viktor Orban, a populist leader who's becoming increasingly authoritarian, has basically asked the parliament to vote to allow him to rule by decree, to vote themselves out of relevance. Um, and that's probably the most extreme example. But I think we face a question of just how far should democratic societies be willing to go in overriding our institutions and norms in order to fight this crisis. You know, Tammy's comment makes me, you know, think that this is also part of sort of the learning experience of the price we are going to pay for institutional degradation in a, that's happening in a lot of different countries and a lot of different democratic countries. You know, I think this is an example of sort of surveillance tools for good, right? Most people think that this would be a, a good thing, a legitimate thing for governments to, you know, attempt to control the the, the spread of disease and and uh, and to protect their populations. The, the real concern and the fear is, of course, that they actually are not going to be bound to single use, that there's going to be mission creep. And so you're, you know, the, you're we're gonna allow the government to use authorities for particular for health purposes, and then lo and behold, it's gonna start being used for law enforcement purposes or for uh, immigration enforcement purposes. I mean that, you know, whenever you have a true crisis moment and you can't believe the government's representations about its intentions. Um, you actually are harming yourself. You're harming your ability to respond um, because you you lack sort of that basic trust. 
past. Um, you know, one thing to sort of think about in the United States is um, uh, sort of the structure of Israel and the, and the relationship to Shin Bet with the rest of their security uh, services is, is, is sort of different than we see in the United States. In the United States, we have a much clearer divide, sort of domestic and foreign facing. And so, you know, it, it does sort of raise the question of the entities that are best positioned to do this kind of tracking within the United States is actually probably not the government. It's the private sector. And so I, I do think one question will be is, is one odd thing that's going to happen moving forward that the private sector will play a role here? And, you know, if you don't show your smartphone, uh, you know, the, that you've proven to Google or Apple uh, that you don't have a fever, you aren't able to walk into a Starbucks or a bank and that sort of all these relationships that tend to be mediated in the private sector without government playing a role that have huge privacy implications, huge equity implications, huge sort of policy implications, if that's not going to be one feature that we see here in the United States moving forward. I think that's a great point, Susan. I, I will just interject one additional data point from the Israeli case, which is that Today, while newly elected members of parliament were wrangling over whether they could convene themselves in the Knesset, and while they were waiting to see who would respect the rulings of the high court, there was a demonstration outside the Knesset, outside the Israeli parliament, that complied with social distancing rules. So the protesters each stood two meters apart while they demanded democracy and the opening of parliament. Well, one thing I am thinking back on as we're having this discussion is I can remember a week or so ago, really before a lot of the so-called lockdown started, you guys will remember those there was the, there were those texts and emails were going around saying, you know, I have a friend who knows somebody in the Homeland Security Department. Trump's going to declare martial law tonight. You know, quick, go to the grocery store. And I was getting this question from, you know, people who I know who I fairly skeptical people who are asking me, like, do you know something? Is this about to happen? So there was this anxiety, it seems to me, of the heavy hand of government coming down in some big, unprecedented way. We haven't seen that. I mean, to some degree, we've seen exactly the opposite of almost the administration sort of stepping back and trying to, uh, you know, persuade people that everything is fine. And Ben, I was just curious, I want to hear your thoughts on what Susan and Tammy are saying, but also, I mean, it seems like, you know, I wonder if you think that our system is just particularly resilient to those kinds of measures and they would be very hard to do, or whether it's more just that, you know, Donald Trump doesn't really have any interest in doing them. And if there were a different president, uh, he actually perhaps, you know, could enact some fairly draconian measures. Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. I can offer a few thoughts on it. The first is that I think you're right that the nature of the American system and specifically American federalism really militates against the kind of actions that you're seeing in other countries. That is, we're not, you know, the, the police power, the ability to order people to stay at home to the extent that it exists at all. It doesn't exist at the federal level. It exists at the state and local levels. And so you have, you know, policy that is being made effectively by the prime minister in Israel or uh, at the national level in a lot of countries is being made at the gubernatorial level in the United States. And if you imagine a surveillance apparatus, who is going to operate that surveillance apparatus? Susan raises the interesting point that, you know, maybe it's Verizon and AT&T but it's not obvious that it is the president. Um, and so that's one component. But the other component is that your other point is right as well, which is that Donald Trump, you know, for all that he has ginned up a lot of fears about his use of federal emergency powers, is actually been quite lackluster in his use in an actual national emergency of federal emergency powers. And so you know, long before you got to the question of whether the federal government could or under what circumstances it could conduct major uh, surveillance operations of the type that, that Bibi Netanyahu ordered, you'd have to confront, you know, there are all these things that he could do that are clearly within his authority, like, for example, ordering production under the Defense Production Act or deploying U.S. military 
doctors to high intensity uh, infection zones that he hasn't done. There are all these non-controversial, relatively non-controversial actions that he could take uh, that I would think would come before anything of that variety. You know, the final point I'll just make quickly is that, you know, surveillance is a funny instrument in, uh, in most of American life. It has a very negative cast. We, you know, we think of it as a bad thing that you sometimes have to do. When the public health community talks about surveillance, they talk about it with an enthusiasm and without a lot of anxiety. And so you'll hear public health, you know, workers uh, or doctors who are interested in infectious disease, they'll say things like, yeah, we need more surveillance on that situation. And, you know, they talk about it without a lot of civil liberties anxiety because most public health surveillance is actually not spying on people. It's spying on bugs. And here we have this conflict between the kind of two visions of surveillance, where if you're a public health person, of course, you want as much visibility into this situation as you can. But if you're an American with a civil liberties bone in your body, the types of surveillance that might be helpful here are more like law enforcement surveillance than they are like traditional public health surveillance. Yeah, it's a great point. These words mean very different things in very different contexts. All right. So while uh, the government has been grappling with the uh, the pandemic, there's actually other important news and life sort of grinds on, in, particularly in the federal bureaucracy. We broke some reporting about a week or so ago that the acting director of the, US, of the National Counterterrorism Center had been removed in what some officials are fearing is a purge. I think some people feel like a long, maybe a weighted purge by the Trump administration of career intelligence community professionals. Ben, I'm kind of curious to start with you on this question of, you know, as a first kind of order matter, do you, do you think that this idea that there is a purge is going on is really what's happening here? Or are we seeing kind of more of a of a bureaucratic uh, adjustment, uh, taking note of the fact that we are, you know, two decades post 9-11, the CIA director has said she wants to re- kind of sort of move off of a war footing uh, with regards to counterterrorism. So do you see signs of a purge here or more of a uh, an adjustment that's probably been some time coming? Certainly the former, which is not to say that some reshuffling at this point might not be justified. But if you do it in a way that involves bringing your wildly unqualified ambassador to Germany, who has no intelligence background, to be the acting DNI, while nominating another wildly unqualified person to be the permanent DNI, and you remove long-serving officials, sometimes under quite humiliating circumstances who just happened to have communicated about the Ukraine situation uh, in a fashion that you don't like with the Hill, clearly there is more going on here than merely a 20-year post-9-11 rebalancing of the intelligence priorities, all of which could really have been done by the president directing the intelligence community to follow other intelligence priorities. And so I think the the idea that this is normal is very pernicious. There's nothing normal about this. The best way to understand this is, as you know, the president had a war with the FBI, he decapitated the FBI, and now he's moving on to other intelligence components. And what all the intelligence components he's waged war on have in common is that they've provided him information that he does not want. Yeah, I I largely agree with Ben that this is not an area in which we should extend the administration any benefit of the doubt. Um, Yes, there are legitimate questions. There's been longstanding questions about whether or not ODNI should even continue to exist. And this is something, right, um, uh, you know, the the Bush administration considered getting rid of it. You know, these are longstanding questions. That said, you know, clearly Grinnell is coming in and capitalizing on this to do a loyalist 
just purge. And, and I do think we should note that Grinnell is an acting DNI. The acting DNI is supposed to be in a caretaker role until somebody is nominated and confirmed. We do not expect acting officials to come in and make major personnel changes um, of other acting officials who haven't, th who themselves are only in, in roles because uh, the former director of the NCTC, Joseph McGuire, of course, was the acting director of DNI and he was purged himself. And so, you know, the idea that um, we're all just kind of shrugging as the president of the United States sidesteps the requirement of the United States Constitution that the Senate provide advice and consent on these important roles and acting officials are just allowed to sort of waltz in for the period of the Vacancies Reform Act and, and sort of do his dirty work absent any kind of political oversight whatsoever. Keep in mind, Grinnell is also refusing to testify before Congress at the same time, openly refusing uh, to go before the intelligence committees to provide them uh, the global threats briefing, right? These are, these are sort of the minimum obligations of the, of the role. And so I, I think this is a moment in which um, Grinnell shouldn't be in the acting position in the first place. This is an abuse of the structure that allows uh, for, for acting officials to be there at all, and the fact that there is not substantial pushback from, from Congress or from the public generally, I, I think is really based on a misapprehension of understanding what's happening here, which is a hollowing out of a critical check, a critical power by which Congress performs oversight and, and ensures that actually qualified, reasonable individuals are in these really really, really important national security roles. So I don't want to take away from any of that, but I do want to say that it's not as though the guy that they're bringing in to head NCTC is a, a political hack with no experience. They're bringing in Chris Miller, who's a special operations NCT official from the Pentagon, um, or at least that's, you know, the person that they said they're going to nominate. And, you know, I think this gets into a broader conversation about the future of counterterrorism. NCTC has been a place where the CIA has had a larger role and has preferred to have its people. And, you know, the special operators feel like they're the ones at the forefront of actually fighting terrorism right now. And so they should have more of a role. And there are real concerns about which of those two schools of thought is right. And I don't know that Richard Grinnell is the best person to assess that particular argument. But, you know, I just wanted to note that I, I'm not sure that the replacement of a, a much beloved and clearly very capable NCTC director with someone with a special operations background is necessarily a disaster for the counterterrorism mission. And I, and I also think that, you know, I think that if we were dealing with a more normal ODNI, then this would be a good time for the ODNI to start asking those bigger questions about where NCTC and where counterterrorism fits into our national security strategy and how many resources should be directed to this kind of effort or whether some of this stuff can be shifted back into more normal channels. But obviously with Richard Grinnell in place, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in the outcome of any such deliberations. I really disagree with that. Um, so to be precise, I don't disagree that the appointment at NCTC on its own is a five alarm fire. But you have to set it in context. The context is the firing of Dan Coates, the removal of Coates's longtime deputy and the preventing of her, of Susan Gordon, from becoming acting. The installation as acting of Mr. McGuire, who was then fired because of Ukraine stuff and replaced with a wholly unqualified loyalist. The initial nomination or intent to nominate Ratcliffe, the then doing it again. And so I think when you put all those things together, you have a picture in which this takes place, in which, as Susan says, it's just, I, I, I see no reason 
to attach a, a presumption of regularity to any personnel moves. The new appointment at NCTC, whose name I'm forgetting for a moment, has a good reputation. And I noticed that Nick Rasmussen, the former director of NCTC, for whom I have very high regards, seems to think very highly of him. So I certainly don't want to cast any aspersions on him. I do question the circumstances of his appointment, which involved the sudden removal of another career official who had apparently displeased people. And just to bring this around too to the theme where we started, I I, I wonder, and if anybody wants to chime in on this, please, it seems to me that one cumulative effect of having, as this administration has across all departments and agencies, but particularly in the national security apparatus, these acting people and these deputies and people who are nominated who just linger, is that, that nobody is empowered to make any decisions or that you understand that if you do make a decision, it might be the last one that you ever make in that role if the president just simply disagrees with you. And that what you've created is an environment essentially in which no one really feels empowered to act unless the president says you may. Uh, and if we you know, think about this of how it was playing out in the early days of the coronavirus. I mean, that we don't know yet. We have a lot that we still have to learn about the different parts of government and how they were reacting. But it seems to me that there is a credible narrative emerging that this was a disastrous situation in which people felt that they could not do anything in their roles, even as cabinet secretaries, until they verbally got the president to agree with them because they simply didn't feel empowered to act independently. Look, and, and just to bring Shane's full circle comment even full circler, um, you know, we are seeing the consequences of that play out in real time as the nation faces an actual crisis that was certainly exacerbated by intelligence officials being unable or unwilling to force information up the chain and either have it being taken seriously by the White House or have it be taken seriously by the United States Congress in some way that actually compelled people to act. And so one sort of, I think, counterfactual to ask is, had we had empowered members of the cabinet, had we had empowered and confirmed individuals, uh, would the American public have been aware of the risks sooner? Um, would they have been able to sort of to, to make more noise and, and, and give more warning? in a way that might have altered the, the really disturbing trajectory we're currently on. All right. Let us move on to a totally new disturbing trajectory. Let's go on to object lessons. Um, Tammy, why don't you go? Or actually, no, Ben. Sorry, Tim Ben has objects. I have two object lessons because I am that cool. My first object lesson arrived by email the other day from a shocked friend who told me that she had been approached on email by a divorce lawyer who was offering his services in the event that quarantine with her husband was simply intolerable. It turns out that the uh, email, which I will read a, a bit of uh, just for your edification is actually from a PR firm representing this lawyer trying to get him interviews so that he can get disgruntled quarantine people to file for divorce. So the letter reads, during this time of high stress, strained relationships may begin to consider divorce and couples that were already planning to separate may be forced to quarantine together. This lawyer uh, can talk about how to mitigate the situation. Uh, this lawyer's name is Mich Michelle Stutman or Michael Stutman of Stutman, Stutman and Lichtenstein, which sounds like a joke, but is a real law firm. Michael can talk about how to mitigate the situation so that you and your partner can make it through isolation peacefully and hopefully together. Notably, the last sentence reads, he can also speak on what to do if quarantine does lead to divorce and the steps moving forward from there. So uh, I have a recommendation to everybody who's under stress in your marriage because of quarantining together, 
First of all, don't take marriage counseling advice from a divorce lawyer. And secondly, if your marriage falls apart <laughs> because of quarantine, go to a lawyer other than Michael Stutman about it. That's my first object lesson. My second <laughs> object lesson is the other day I was lying around feeling sorry for myself because I'm quarantined and bored. And I thought I should have a YouTube show to talk about all this. And then I thought, you know, who do I want to do a YouTube show with? And for some reason, the person who came to mind was Kate Klonick, the great law professor who uh, writes sometimes for The New Yorker and for Lawfare and for other places and is an expert on content moderation. And for those of you who listen to the Lawfare podcast, does the disinformation podcasts once a week with Quinta Jurassic and some of our other colleagues. Uh, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a YouTube show with Kate? And so I tweeted that I wanted to do a YouTube show with Kate, and she wrote back that she wanted to do it. And so we are launching it today at the suggestion of a Twitter contributor. We're calling it In Lieu of Fun, and it will be uh, live streamed every day at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on the In Lieu of Fun YouTube channel. So uh, uh, we will post a link to it on the uh, show page today, and we hope you'll come join us. We're going to have no idea what we're going to do on this, but we're going to have In Lieu of Fun doing it. Ben, you realize you're going up against the president's daily briefings at five o'clock. I'm totally down for that. In fact, maybe the slogan <laughs> of In Lieu of Fun should be watch In Lieu of Fun instead. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll go next. Uh, speaking of things to watch, so you know everyone's saying like, don't look at your 401k, right? Because it'll just depress you and scare you too much. But apparently the show, the movie Contagion, uh, is all over Netflix and people are downloading it. So I saw Contagion when it came out and I wasn't that impressed with it. I didn't think it was that great of a movie. I decided to just go back and watch it to see if it holds up. Man, does it hold up. It is kind of crazy. It almost reads like it was written like this week. I mean, there are scenes about touching your face and washing your hands. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember if the word coronavirus is actually used, um, but things like the R not of a virus uh, and uh, all of these sort of weird terms and these uh, this vernacular that has become such a part of our daily uh, dialogue. It's all over this movie. It's kind of crazy. Um, I also forgot that like Gwyneth Paltrow dies in like the first 90 seconds of this movie. Spoiler. Well, um, that's a reason but, you know, to watch it, it right there. <laughs> <laughs> Except in the movie, she's like not actually poisoned by goop. It's just like an actual virus in China. <laughs> um, but it's kind of wild. I'm watching it and I did not get freaked out by it. I think maybe some people would say this is a very strange, it's like watching The Shining when you're in quarantine, probably not a great idea. But I thought it was highly entertaining and I thought, my God, this movie is just like, it was rather prescient and that's really freaking terrifying. Uh, so Contagion, give it a whirl. Try it for the first time. Uh, Susan, what's your object? So my object lesson is a piece of technology that I have long sworn would never be in the Hennessy household, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And last week, my sister sent all of our family members Facebook portals, um, which are these like video chat devices so that we can talk to each other sort of more easily. Um, and within these Facebook portals, there is also an Alexa um, which my five-year-old has become completely enamored with and asks Alexa for like a million dinosaur facts every day, except for I do feel like I've can now be affirmed that I have planted the seed of skepticism of the private sector in him because after asking for his hundredth dinosaur fact of the day, he turned and looked at me and said, Mom, is Alexa good? <laughs> and I just think that's really the question we should all be asking. Indeed, that is the question. Now Alexa is scraping all of our private information and we're just going to lean into it and let it listen. 
So what did you say as Alexa good? What was your response? I, I, I said, what do you think? Which is my like go-to when I don't know how to answer oh, that something. that is the awesome parental cop-out answer. And by the way, very yeah, good for yeah. the kid. I don't know. I think Alexa's going to have the last laugh. Do you think Alexa will just be like the last I don't know. Pandering? It's not great. <laughs> Hopefully Alexa will not interfere with our podcast because we want people to hear it. And, um, and we're at the end of it. Susan, you should tell Charlie to ask Alexa whether Alexa is good. Ooh, that's a good idea. He did suggest He did suggest that we tell Alexa things that we know that she doesn't. <laughs> oh no 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 no! <laughs> oh, do not have a spirit of reciprocity. <laughs> oh my God, she just went off. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I'm gonna sort of. I've got Alexa breathing down my neck back here, so we better wrap this thing up. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. That is still standing, right? That hasn't. Lawfare has not quarantined. Lawfare lives. It lives. You could find uh, merch for Ben's new YouTube program at uh, quarantinefund.lawfarestore.letmeoutside. Correct. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. We are there. When you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our intrepid audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week, I don't know how I feel about this, by Donald Trump and his Leonard Skinner tribute band, Rarin and Rollin'. Uh, yeah. Not the best. It's not the best. It's not my best. I don't know. I, but which can you? I can't imagine him in a tribute band of some. You know, kind. all bell curves have to have a lower end. <laughs> Something try. has to be below average. I'm going to try and do better next week. As Sophia Yan, I'm sure, was very displeased with that band name. But until then, on behalf of my very good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Keep flattening the curve. Bye bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.